Hey there, podcast listeners. Adam here from Greeting the Apocalypse. You may have noticed there was no show last week on the podcast feed. That is because we're not going to bore you with our annual Radiothon appeal because we spent one hour just begging, pleading, cajoling, although it's pretty easy to do because uh, actually the benefits are immense, but we were soliciting subscriptions to the radio station that hosts us, and that is 3RRR in Melbourne. And if you're listening to this through the podcast, you might not even really be aware of who RRR are. RRR are? Well, they are one of the most, well, just in my life personally, like in incredibly important radio station which introduced me to so many different ways of thinking and heaps of different original music through the years triple r is just so important to melbourne and its culture and people from all around the world can listen to it there's heaps of shows that are really worth listening to um music and politics and hey there's a whole show about fish and the oceans which is surprisingly fascinating but just so much across the dial. And RRR exists because of user subscriptions. And one of the things that we did say on our annual Radiothon appeal was just in this period where collective action problems, of the, the kind of things of how do we coordinate to solve something like climate change where it requires a, a certain amount of altruism, but for the greater good and that we will in the end benefit all of us and you could pull your hair out just thinking well does that go against human nature and yet in the midst of this people people like you subscribe to triple r and it's not that much really it's i think it works out a dollar 63 a week for a annual subscription um but you don't have to do it you can tune in for free but people do it they do it because they love the station and they want to want to keep it on air. And we hope that you will be part of those wonderful people, the subscribers who do it. And if you subscribe any time from now until the 26th of September, you go into the draw, even though Radiothon is the 10 days of it the, are over. But um, you can still go in to the draw for the prizes and uh, they're described as so ridiculously awesome, they may make your brain slightly melt. I won't list them, but they are. <laughs> they're really good. And if you would subscribe, that'd, we're all volunteers. We don't see the money, but we just love the station and we want to see it keep going. And, we, and we're so grateful that we are allowed to use their facilities. And they put Greeting the Apocalypse live to air we've had the occasional crisis of confidence where we go hey we talk about some pretty dark things on here on this show should we be like you know broadcasting that to the melbourne public but the station have been like so supportive and uh i don't know it just makes me feel so grateful for what a wonderful bunch they are and um people all across the dial and in management and the people that support it it's just a beautiful thing um, and it gives me a sense of hope in the world that you and other people just pick up the wallet and pull out the credit card and give some money away. Don't just give it away because you may get some prizes and you also, if you, throughout the year, you get all subscriber discounts and you can ring up and get free stuff when there's competitions and live to airs, free events. Um, Anyway, it gives, gives us hope for the bigger picture collective action problems too, like solving climate change, like dealing with some of the big picture environmental energetic issues. Just 
a shame that that stuff doesn't have such as such good prizes as triple r does i mean okay the survival of nature and all things beautiful and wonderful that's pretty good too but not as good as the prizes that you can win during triple r radiothon if you subscribe by the 26th of september if you would subscribe it would make us so happy you can if you're in melbourne or in australia you can dial 03 9388-1027 during business hours or go to rrr.org.au and um, there's forms you can fill in there. Thank you so much. This is the four-minute version of what was a one-hour show, but uh, sorry you missed out last week because we were just doing that, but we will now commence regular broadcasting. And incidentally, one of the things that we think makes Greening the Apocalypse possibly unusual in the media space in Australia is that we take the idea that growth, the idea that there will be ongoing beneficial economic and social growth, which we would love in many ways, but to think that it is inevitable, um, we're not so sure about that there are all these environmental and energy trends which are going against it. And we don't think that any anywhere else in the Australian media sphere takes the issue of the idea that we could be at the peak of human civilization right now as a serious potential for the future. Um, a lot of people think it, but they don't get to talk about it. And uh, so we're really grateful. And tonight's show is very much about that. It's about is growth inevitable? So hang on and keep listening. This is KMO. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r 102.7 fm KMO, you are you were on Greening the Apocalypse last year, and you talked about your history as an early Amazon employee just down the hallway from now the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. And at the time, you were something of a singularitarian. You were the extreme form of a techno optimist that you imagined a future in which we possibly lived inside computers, and everything that we desired could be true as one possible outcome, at least. And we traced your transition to an underemployed person who possibly, as you suggested, by virtue of the psychological attraction to the end of civilization, um, when you were feeling depressed and down and out, uh, you got into the peak oil world and became something of a doomer and thought the civilization could indeed collapse. But you're now somewhere hovering in the middle, possibly more of a doomer than a singularitarian. I'm not, not sure, but you also host, and I have listened to uncountable hours of the Sea Round podcast, as well as uh, many other podcasts, actually. 
of which um, you have burrowed deep into many of my neurons. So welcome back to Greening the Apocalypse KMO. Thank you, Adam. That was an excellent summation. <laughs> yeah, so you are more of an agnostic these days. But I did think, you know, in terms of whether, you know, the future is going to be bleak or bright, I therefore thought you could be a really good person to talk about a particular issue, which I often think about as being an unspoken assumption that informs a lot of people that I listen to. And I listen to a lot of podcasts from the kind of of science and rationality sphere of thinking. And there are some super intelligent people in that world that put me to shame. And I learn so much from them, but often I find there is an assumption unexpressed in a lot of their thinking, something which maybe took a hit in the 70s and 80s, but came back again subtly. And that's that idea that progress, the idea that the human condition and technological advancements is on an endless upward trajectory and that this almost works its way into their thoughts in a way not that dissimilar to religious beliefs. And you have spoken about this particular issue with John Michael Greer on your show. Can you tell us, first of all, a little bit about JMG, John Michael Greer? Well, JMG uh, is the former head of one of the larger Druidic organizations here in the United States. And as such, he had a blog called the Arch Druid Report, in which he was uh, not at all putting on airs. He was, in fact, an Arch Druid. And that ran for many years. And then he got frustrated with it because... um, to log into it, he had to enter, you know, he had to do two factor authentication, which meant, you know, having uh, a code sent to his cell phone, and he doesn't have a cell phone. <laughs> so uh, he got so furious with that that um, he started a new blog called EcoSophia, which, uh, to my regret, I haven't made the transition with him and started reading the new blog, the old one, the Archdeward Report, he published religiously, like clockwork, not religiously, I suppose. I, that's the poor choice of words in this context, but uh, very regularly on Wednesday, he published a new blog post in the, the realm of two to 3,000 words. I mean, these are substantial blog posts, and I read them for years, and then when he made the switch to the new blog, his schedule changed, and I never quite synced with it. So uh, I guess I'm, I'll be waiting for the books that he, he crafts from his blog posts, which he does a couple times a year. His, he so. writes an incredible amount. I'm just thinking my friends in the rationalist scientific community, when they hear, oh, you're going to quote an archdruid against us, are you? Are going to, you know, roll their eyes. But he is one of the most widely read people that I've ever come across and with a particular focus on history. And he's also been involved in things like the like alternative energy movements and appropriate technology movements since the 70s. And he has a decent amount of hands-on experience. And I think those two things come to inform some pretty impressive intuitions about the future. Uh, And I've really enjoyed your conversations with him on the C-Round podcast. Should we, uh, maybe even before we come to his critique and his ideas about the idea of progress being this kind of religious-like myth. So let's come back to JMG. Should we summarize, like, just acknowledge that there's some good reasons why we might think that progress 
is likely to continue and maybe even what we mean by progress. Do you feel like you could make a steel man case for the affirmative? Steel man meaning, you know, it's the opposite of what they call the straw man. I'm explaining this to listeners. I'm sure you're probably <laughs> familiar with the, the term. But do you feel like you could do justice? And given that you were once one of these humans, uh, to the idea that, that progress is indeed inevitable and technological progress in particular will continue. I'm not sure I could make the steel man case, but I think I could make a, a pretty solid, say, uh, maybe mahogany man case for it. <laughs> As humans in our, you know, our struggle to uh, overcome the challenges presented to us by, you know, physical existence, uh, we, we develop certain techniques. And those techniques, uh, in, particularly in the realm of science, have become very formulaic and very effective and we have uh, an ever-growing scientific community and uh, amazing tools that we have created, not only uh, hardware tools like you know the globe-spanning um, information technology network that you and I are using to speak right now, but just the organizational and the... Um, uh, the methodological tools of science, you know, the systemic doubt, the uh, the process of forming hypotheses and then submitting them to uh, an organized process of challenge by qualified peers, that all of this creates a um, a system by which innovation and the advancement of theory and the, the technology that we build, you know, based on our theories, uh, it just gets re- more reliable and uh, faster and faster. And I, I think that I think that this this notion can withstand the idea of uh, low hanging fruit. That you know there are certain things you can't discover twice. Hmm. Like uh, one of the the greatest discoveries in terms of you know systematizing our thought and making it more uh, powerful and robust and 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 facile is the discovery of zero. You know it's really hard to do complex mathematics with Roman numerals, and the Romans didn't have a zero. Uh huh. So. You know, adding uh, the Arabic numerals to the the Western mindset gave us enormous power to you know to manipulate ideas and to craft the universe the way we want it to. But you can't discover zero twice. I mean, that's the to me the ultimate low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. But um, the more the more dis- the more we discover, the more tools we have for future discovery. I think is probably the mahogany man case for thinking that progress will continue. Yeah, I think you, I think that was actually pretty impressive. You did you did well, and I was feeling convinced. Um, and it, for, for it, an instant, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think you know everything you said there. Whether it comes out in the wash that we do move onwards and upwards indefinitely, there's no question that all those factors are genuine forces, and it's only that there may be counter forces against them which could prevent. Um, progress from continuing. Would that be fair to say? Well, would you like the uh, what I think the, the primary counterforce is? Go for it. Uh, are you familiar with the Peter Principle? Yes. This is about when somebody is, um, is uh, inside an institution and is promoted to the level of their incompetence, correct? Yes. So the Peter Principle is the, the foundational principle of the science of hierarchyology. So it is formally stated that in any hierarchy, each individual will be will advance to his or her level of incompetence and then stay there. But fleshed out a bit, what that means is that 
if you are in a position where you are eligible for promotion, provided you are not super incompetent or super competent, you will not be fired. Uh, if you are merely competent in what you do, then you will be eligible for promotion. So you get promoted to a new position in which you have new responsibilities. If you demonstrate competence in that new position, you can be promoted again. Eventually, you will reach a placement where you are incompetent, but you're not so incompetent that you will be fired. You're just incompetent enough that you're no longer eligible for promotion. So the older a hierarchy is, the more people within it have found their final placement and are basically not doing any productive work anymore. Uh, according to the Peter Principle, the only people in any hierarchy who are doing anything useful are the ones who are still climbing the ladder, the ones who have not yet found their final placement. Uh -huh. And so as organizations get bigger, as they get older, they get bloated with people who aren't doing anything. And this is true in universities, and this is true in research institutes and corporations. So that glorious, globe-spanning, you know, methodologically uh, oriented scientific community that I described earlier is also subject to the Peter Principle, so that it is, you know, there are more and more people engaged supposedly in the task of research, but fewer and fewer of them uh, as a percentage are doing any productive research. Mm. Well, that is interesting. I'm not sure whether that would be a process which I, I don't see why that would be acting um, any more now than it was 50 years ago or something, though, when it was undeniable that we were in a process of growth and progress. Well, there's a lot more people now than there were 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. True. But, um, the, yeah, it feels like that might be a like a constant effect. Or may maybe it's something that um, like ossifies institutions, but then uh, they, can be, they can fail and there can be shakeups and new ones are formed which are more productive again. So, and that could be happening constantly or maybe it happens in bursts through recessions and um, where you have institutions failing and then new ones form in the upswings which are more productive again. So I'm, I'm interested in your point, but I'm not feeling it as um, something which would prevent, you know, that it's necessarily going to prevent progress in the long run. But it I doesn't prevent progress. It just lowers the, um, the research that any particular individual can do. Like individual... Uh, research productivity is declining even as the number of people employed in it is increasing. Yeah. Well, that's that's the, the basis of a, a paper that I think you sent me. I did, yes. So that was, yeah, so recently some economists at Stanford University put out a paper, I think it was late last year, looking at declining productivity for researchers. And a, a lot of what I've looked at in the past and you have on the sea realm when we look at you know is growth inevitable and is it going to continue forever some of the countervailing forces to that have been things to do with limits to the amount of resources that we can pull out of the ground because most of what we use to build things and power things are finite resources uh, whereas this was looking at limits to human knowledge do you think um I'm kind of tempted, though, before we get into that, because that is a juicy topic in itself. I would like to just um, just sort of uh, I've been reading some books which make the case for growth really strongly. And maybe it's worth just um, 
doing that argument a bit more justice before we get in even more to some of the countervailing forces. And I, I just think it's probably worth mentioning that like we're probably on the fringe here if we're making arguments against growth and progress being inevitable. And I think that's reasonable insofar as the fact that um, rates of technological advancement and standards of living and the amount of resource use per capita have been growing for so many generations that it's essentially now grandparent wisdom that they would go on and continue do you know if you think my grandma passed away last year but when she was a youngin you know she had she walked to school or she had a horse for some of it when she was living in a farm far away and so she saw this incredible amount of change through her life so i think i'd find it hard to convince somebody like her that progress was not on an onward and upward trajectory well, yes and no. I mean, a lot of people that age, particularly here in the United States, they lived through the Great Depression. So while they saw, uh, you know, they saw great technological advancement, they saw the ad, you know, the, the wiring and the plumbing of the continent, which changed lives more than probably, you know, any other technological development. Um, they also saw a sudden crash of the system. And, you know, people uh, of that age in the U.S. are it's it's a stereotype that you know they've got a whole bunch of rice and beans and in, in dry storage down in the cellar uh-huh. because you know they they don't have confidence that things are on the onward and upward track the people who have great confidence that that is the case are the baby boomers who you know came into the world at the height of post-war prosperity and have really had a, a very easy life in terms of uh, hitting all of these standard what we call here American dream milestones, you know, starting your career, getting married, buying your first house, all that stuff. Um, they had it easy for them. The, the progress, the, the notion of progress is unassailable in terms of their personal experience, you know, their, their life trajectory. And I think they are the people who, at least here in the U.S., uh, are the ones committing suicide in the greatest numbers now that things are starting to fall apart. Uh, the the uh, the age range at which a man is supposed to be making the most money in his life is basically where I am now, you know, late 40s, early 50s. Uh, and there are people who have been doing what they were supposed to be doing their entire lives who are just a bit older than me. They're, they're hitting retirement age and, you know, maybe they're, they're underinsured and a, an illness destroys them financially. And they were solidly in the middle class and on track to have the retirement they were expected or, you know, their their pension has evaporated or, you know, the job that they had planned to ride out into uh, into retirement went away prematurely and suddenly things aren't working out. These guys are killing themselves in record numbers. Hmm. So uh, I think the disillusionment for those guys is is really harsh. And while I've had some, you know, some uh, setbacks and some demotions in terms of my social status and my certainly economic status, uh, they have come early enough and irregularly enough that uh, I have I've weathered the psychological storm, I think. And even though I'm not in a particularly enviable position on paper in terms of, you know, where I am in my life, you know, working toward the various milestones, psychologically, I think, uh, you know, I collapsed early and avoided the rush, as, <laughs> as John Michael Greer and others like to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's really interesting that you put, yeah, the the idea that things are falling apart in the present tense you are as um, yeah as maybe obvious in the U.S. and here in Australia we did not 
suffer greatly from the global financial crisis and we piggybacked on the resource boom of an expanding China. And to look around here, it's very much a case of like, well, everything is progressing as normal and and progress is increasing. Um, We're starting to see the first change in trajectory in the housing market. Melbourne has some of the highest house prices in the world where we are here. Um, But in the US, things are a bit of a different story. Um, Maybe just for our Australian audiences who aren't quite aware of that, you know, have have things, do they feel like they've turned a corner there? Well, here's a statistic that should make your blood run cold. I mean, maybe not in in sunny Australia, even in winter. But uh, in the United States, the number of people who die annually from heroin overdoses exceeds the number of people who die from gunshots and the number of people who die in automobile crashes combined. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are in the grip of deadly despair, I think. Yeah. Uh, the Particularly people in the Democratic Party who represent you know, the, um, the professional servant class of the, of the wealthy, they deny it. <laughs> Which is why, you know, they put up a, a status quo candidate back in 2016 and, and tried to run on the everything is great. We're going to keep it keep it the way it is platform, which, you know, was not tenable. Uh, it's it's bleak here. I mean, the, the place where I live, I live in a, a village, a proper village in Vermont, which is in New England. Uh, for those I, many Americans don't know where Vermont is, so I don't expect, you know, anybody in Australia to. But. Uh, Vermont is a small state of 600,000 people. It's it borders Canada, and particularly here in southern Vermont, there's just no industry. There is there's nothing that provides uh, you know a large scale middle class wages with benefits, and people here, I mean they've there's a, a class of people here who have been poor for a very long time, but the village in which I live was once quite prosperous because it's on the Connecticut River. There is a dam here, there is a power plant here, and there are several abandoned, empty, derelict old paper mills. But a century ago, those paper mills were turning wood into you know, lumber and paper, and uh, they made a lot of money. So this town is full of very big houses, you know, houses with servants' quarters and uh, detached stables, which are now garages. But there aren't enough people who can afford to live in houses like that, so they've all been broken up into apartments. Mm-hmm. And this village has the highest rate of uh, rental occupancy in the state, which means that people who can't afford to buy houses come here. And we have a lot of services and we have a lot of programs for people getting out of prison. So uh, this village is is filled with people that, uh, you know, the property people here don't want to see any more of. Those people, they call them. But, you know, that's, that's just a snapshot of um, uh, the psychological landscape here. Yeah. We are post-peak in terms of prosperity and in terms of optimistic outlook. Yeah. And so there's a, a cynicism amongst, you know, everybody that comes out of that, which is presumably easy to tap into with if you can make a successful case of making America great again, for instance. <laughs> for instance. <laughs> yeah. So... America is often, you know, ahead of the curve uh, and Australia follows suit. We'll see what happens here in the next few years now that 
you know, China's boom seems to be over and housing prices are turning a corner. But outside of those potentials, there are some larger things to do with the economy. And I'm not sure when this is going to go to air, but I'm pre-recording it just after a conversation with David Spratt and Ian Dunlop, who have written a report about climate change, which makes a very strong case that the science is generally extremely conservative and underreported and then watered down further in policy and that the real challenges facing us are somewhat more dire. Ian Dunlop is a former coal exec who is also the deputy chair of the Australian Association for the Study of Peak Oil. So he's concerned about both ends of the issue of using non-renewable resources. Will we run out of the stuff that goes into the tank? And B, what's the impact of the carbon emissions coming out of the tailpipe or the exhaust? And both of those things are large challenges to the idea of ongoing growth. And one thing that I tend to find amongst the people that are really interested in rationality and science and have at their core this idea that growth is inevitable and progress will continue by virtue of its um, building on itself, like you eloquently expressed, is that some some of those facts about limited resources and climate change and pollution and other limits to growth are conveniently overlooked. And Stephen Pinker recently had the book. I don't know if you've come across it. Uh, I haven't actually read it, but I've just read a little bit around it called Enlightenment Now. Have you come across that one? Well, um, I have a subscription to Audible, and they're continuously suggesting that book to me. So uh-huh. <laughs> I know of its existence. I have not read it. I haven't read any Stephen Pinker. Um, I you know, maybe yeah, I've read articles and maybe summations of his books and things, but I, I, I don't follow his work closely. Yeah, I read his last book, Better Angels of Our Nature, which is a history of violence throughout the Western world in particular. And he makes a really strong case that the Enlightenment values and a whole lot of other effects, but they're kind of tied into uh, science and knowledge and the moral philosophies that were associated with that actually have radically decreased the amount of violence per capita. And so he's really tied into that idea that the institutions of liberal democratic capitalism and science and reason bring with them these better outcomes for humans, not just technologically and materially, but in how we behave with each other and how our institutions take care of ourselves. But George Monbiot, the Guardian columnist, wrote an article just taking apart his assertions on the environment issues and uh, that he misrepresented and ignored a whole lot of facts around that and you pretty much have to if you're going to make that case because i actually believe and i love all the things that he's talking about i'm i really like enlightenment values and i like people that don't stab each other with a fork because you looked at them sideways over a medieval table i'm really glad that we've come to this place but the problem with our liberal democratic democracy capitalist systems is that they are eating the planet and destroying themselves uh, by auto-cannibalism, by eating the um, the resources that they depend on. 
I don't normally do this much ranting in a show, but I think the the question that that your rant raises is that <clears throat> is the one of can the enlightenment values and the uh, the reduced tendency to be stabby, as you would say, uh, can that survive the end of growth? Because hmm. they don't necessarily and, need to be tied. You're right. Yes, but it seems like they are tied. Hmm. <laughs> uh, which came first? I mean, the, the reduction in violence or the material prosperity? You know, the Enlightenment came before the material prosperity, certainly before the uh, the Industrial Revolution. But when did the decrease in violence really get rolling? Yeah, I I think he... I can't remember dates that Pinker puts on it, but he talks about the end of dueling as being a kind of one of the key points. You know, he, he also looks at warfare and, and um, you know that level of violence as well but at the interpersonal level he talks about the movement from an honor-based culture where any um, small insult had to be responded to with violence in order to maintain your honor to a dignity-based culture and the end of dueling which I I know that happened in the early days of the US um, would probably tie somewhat to that at least. Yes, but uh, how how much did it actually reduce uh, the the experience of you know your typical individual in terms of being the subject of, of violence or the object of violence? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. He tries to quantify it by um, you know the number of deaths by violence in records, but yeah, I can't off the top of my head tell you anything of relevance. I think you did touch on uh, a key point though, which is honor based cultures. Mm. Um. In Which the United States, yeah. uh, African-Americans make up 14% of the population and commit half the homicides. And uh, typically, the, you know, the victims of these homicides are also African-Americans. And it has uh, one explanation that I heard for this recently was that law enforcement and the, the larger culture in general have have come down hard on uh, honor cultures or subcultures based on honor you know, among white people, particularly affluent white people, but have let it linger in the African-American community. Hmm. And uh, under under police, um, you know, violent crime, so that in the African-American community, there are people walking around that everybody around them knows have committed murder and will commit murder again, you know, based on certain provocations. So, and the police aren't going to do anything about it. So, you know, you just, you don't, you don't trigger them. <laughs> you just wait for them to age out of that uh, that danger zone. And yeah, I mean, that's um, I think that I'm not going to say that's the, the sole explanation for the, the state of uh, race relations and the disparity in, in crime in the United States. But it certainly does seem to be playing a role. And it seems like um, zero tolerance for, you know, the ethics of an honor based culture could keep us fairly peaceful, even after the gravy train has ended in terms of, you know, material resources coming out of the ground and making people rich. Yeah. Yeah, well, just just on that, the I guess, part of having institutions that are dependable, and if, at least if you're white, you know, you can call the police when you have a problem, it means that you do not have to resort to violence yourself to to settle confrontations or or any kind of disagreement 
Whereas if you're a black person in the US, you're stupid, especially if, you know, if certain demographics to call the police because you're likely to be told to get down on the ground before you do anything and accused of something. So they have to settle their own disagreements. But anyway, that seems like a, a, a maybe getting into a side topic. Um, <laughs> it's a side topic that's hugely important um, for you, you yeah. know, to people living here. Yeah, so this this idea of decreasing violence being one of the possible associated outcomes of increasing technological development, science, self-knowledge, and um, the moral philosophies that we get to discuss and decide upon as, as a large political organization and the institutions within it, um, I don't know if we reached a conclusion about whether these could survive a transition to a lower energy future, but I do like to think so. And certainly there are some scenarios where um, being forced to know your neighbours and have better community relations because you have to share resources if there's less of them, uh, more people on the st- on just living life on the streets rather than driving out of their neighbourhoods and living you know, unwatched and more crime-prone streets. Like All these things could actually benefit in a future with less progress in the technological and material sense. So I don't know if that's some way of tying that in a little bit more to what we're talking about. But let's um, come back to that. And the uh, I, I did think a little bit that, um, you know, maybe since the the science fiction started getting a bit more cynical with Philip K. Dick in the 60s and 70s and um and that really bleeding into popular culture into the in the 80s and 90s that some of the hopes and dreams and idealism associated with earlier science fiction and our visions of the future where u.s presidents would talk about oh what are we going to do with all our leisure time and that being a problem um that we really had quite utopian visions for the future but that I thought that disappeared, but a lot of them seem to have coalesced in the figure of Elon Musk. And I know you don't follow his work closely, but I feel like he has really reignited this face, this faith and hope in the future in a way that I find really attractive personally. I know a lot of my friends do where he's not only talking about cleaner, greener technologies now, he's the CEO of Tesla who make electric cars, um, but his primary focus is on the colonization of space starting with Mars and in their um, SpaceX headquarters, which he also heads, there's um, an artist's impression of life on Mars in these futuristic domes that is a massive mural that everybody sees. Um, at the same time, and I don't know how you feel about this, but like we looked into some of the science and the stats behind some of his claims on a previous show. And it hurts me when so many people get caught up in what seem actually when you drill down into it to be pretty empty promises, uh, have you um, watched any of his press releases or checked out any of the technology that he's promising? Um, sure. I mean, Elon Musk, in my experience, is, is a figure very much like uh, Jordan Peterson 
in that <laughs> people invest them as uh, symbols for ideas with which they either agree or disagree. Mm-hmm. And just the mere mention of their names can make people angry or agitated um, so that you know, some people listening to this who are familiar with Elon Musk, you know, are just just saying the name Elon Musk either gives them a dopamine hit because they just they they really get the warm fuzzies over uh, everything that he stands for. Or, you know, they've got a little adrenaline spike because he's a representative of a viewpoint that they really dislike. And I think that, uh, you know, in terms of what they actually do, these emotional responses are really uh, they're out of proportion to to what's warranted. But you know, going back to John Michael Greer, he posted a um, a blog piece about Elon Musk a couple of years ago in which he described him as a subsidy dumpster king, which is to say he is very skillful at taking advantage of government subsidies for developing technologies which have, you know, the promise for getting us off of fossil fuels. And uh, none of his businesses actually make any money. Oh, they lose a they, lot of money. <laughs> Yeah, they lose a whole bunch of money. Like I think uh, Tesla loses something on the order of five hundred thousand dollars an hour. Yeah, and uh, you know they they can't even fulfill their fairly modest production goals uh, in terms of actually making cars. And you know they're just if it weren't for governments spending a lot of money and uh, trying to develop energy efficient technologies, alternative energy technologies, alternative, you know, non-carbon emitting transportation technologies. Uh, Elon Musk, where would he be? What would he be? He he might be doing very well financially, you know, using his ability to spin scenarios and inspire people with visions of the future in some other realm. In fact, I don't think he would be a pauper, but I don't think that he would be as, as fabulously uh, wealthy as he is. Definitely. But I'm not offended by that because so many people make absurd amounts of money doing things which are absolutely useless. And as you say, he does spin a very inspiring tale about, you know, transitioning to a better way of life. Yeah, and he does have some – he's an incredibly smart guy who has actually managed to recruit some incredibly smart engineers and he chooses ones that don't have, that don't have family and he invests them with this fervor of going to Mars and – uh, all these other future visions of human-to-human, technologically-driven telepathy and uh, supersonic um, underground travel between U.S. capitals and um, these real sci-fi visions. And he, he uses that and turns it into some outcomes that are actually impressive. Uh, it's just I don't think that he's going to be able to deliver on the full vision. And when it comes crashing down and there are signs that that it might be in the not you know, too distant future. He, he, he tweeted on April the 1st that they'd gone bankrupt as a joke for April Fool's Day and the company lost 6%. People are really afraid how over, how over leveraged the company is. And with well, it, we all know that a lot of things said in jest are, are sort of, um, you know, things that are, are largely true and they're based on our fears, which loom large just below the surface. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And it's once in a, it's it's part of a series of um, mishaps, including him calling uh, one of the Thai cave rescuers a pedo, which has created a cascade of backlash. But when I I just feel like if it does fall, it could be one of the like last bits of hope. Like he really dredged up some of that nineteen fifties can do capitalism and positive visions of the future and if he goes down burning then it's 
I just feel like emotionally it's going to be really difficult for a lot of people who really want that and for good reason because it's like a beautiful vision um, and we will be, you know, back to even more cynicism and and other players will be the ones that with maybe darker visions that will be the ones being tapping into that and maybe into the darker side of human nature whereas he was at least tapping into, you know, greater hopes for the future. You mentioned John Michael Greer and we introduced him at the beginning. Do you feel like you could do um, justice to his idea that the that progress is um, takes the form of a religious belief? Yeah, he calls it the civil religion of our time. Yeah. And uh, it's, I think, I think you've summed it up fairly well. I mean, the, the expectation that things are going to get better and better is uh, it is a useful narrative for people in power. It certainly legitimizes their place in society. It gives normal people hope, and it has been very consistent with the life experience of a certain subset of people who enjoyed the uh, you know the 20th century boom and prosperity. Uh, I think it is wearing thin, though, and uh, you know it's it's certainly I could imagine that it is a popular narrative in China because it is certainly within the lived experience of a lot of people there who have been lifted out of poverty. Oh, I mean that um, was incredible! It was like a billion people went through the industrial revolution in twenty years, faster yeah. than than it was done the first time with more people. So yeah, that's a an example of um, progress going at light speed. But. Um, you know, people in other places where uh, that the progress has, has climbed the S curve and plateaued and is maybe uh, descending. You know, I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think people are likely to take on a systems view and think, oh, you know, these bursts of progress are, are part of a cyclical process and we can't expect them to go on forever. Uh, when your own gravy train of, of progress has peaked and is in the decline, it seems pretty catastrophic and, and gives rise to, uh, you know, it, it presents a strong motivation to latch on to unnecessarily dark worldviews which uh have you spoken to nicole foss yes she's been on the show one of our early guests yeah so she describes herself as just you know consistently counter cyclical to the the current mania which i think (laughs) is is great so right now uh she is saying to people you know think and and john michael greer is also in this camp he is is counter cyclical to the doomers he's basically saying (laughs) Look, civilization is, while there is no um, guarantee of onward and upward progress, regardless of what happens, it's also silly to think that the zombie apocalypse is right around the corner. That's just not how civilizations fall. They haven't in the past. Ours won't go that way. You know, it's it's a slow, long process. You can live a happy life through the collapse, you know, if you, if you orient yourself correctly. And uh, Nicole Foss articulates a similar vision, and I think it's one that is, is much needed right now. Yeah. Hey, before we, we move on, I just want to say about mm. Mars. Yeah. I think the idea that humans are going to live on Mars is stupid. Uh, as, as Neil deGrasse Tyson said, we have carefully surveyed every planet in the solar system, and Earth is by far the best one. You know, our bodies are adapted for life on this planet. Once you get out, you know, away from the magnetic uh, field of this planet and outside of our atmosphere, we, our bodies are just not tenable for life in the hard radiation of space. And just even a two-year trip to Mars and back without gravity and with exposure to that much cosmic radiation is likely to shorten 
the lives of those astronauts considerably, assuming they make it back. And, uh, you know, Mars is for robots. I think that, you know, artificial intelligence, whether or not it ever, you know, equals uh, sentient human intelligence will certainly get more and more sophisticated. And robots that can operate on Mars are already very autonomous. I think they will grow more autonomous. I think they'll be able to cover more ground, do more scientific experiments, and maybe even start to build infrastructure on Mars where maybe in a few centuries humans could just move in, you know, to the finished underground Hilton Hotel that the robots built on Mars. But, you know, I'm not saying that that's a guarantee that that's actually going to happen. But I think for the time being, space exploration is for robots. They can operate in that environment and humans cannot. And the vision that we are going to move to Mars and make the human species more resilient and, uh, you know, better able to sustain shocks by having multiple planets, I think that is a I don't want to say it's a foolish aim because, you know, just striving for it produces all manner of other benefits. But I think as an end unto itself, it's unlikely. Hmm. Well, you read the article that um, we mentioned earlier, Are Ideas Getting Harder to Find by the Stanford University and MIT economists who did a deep dive into various research fields and, uh, and industrial fields and found that there seems to be diminishing returns on scientific research. One of those is the idea of Moore's Law. Could you explain that? I know you've um, spoken about it on the podcast before. Sure. Moore's Law is just an observation that the density of transistors on an integrated circuit doubles about every 18 to 24 months, which uh, Shouldn't mean a lot to people who don't have anything to do with computers. So a better way to describe it is uh, $1,000 buys twice as much computing power every couple of years. Mm -hmm. So this is something which is, seems to have been true since, what, the 1970s or, or going back that far, that there's been a remarkably consistent trend over that period. Yes. And in fact, Ray Kurzweil, who is the high priest of the civil religion of progress, yes. you know, the... Uh, the Silicon Valley variant of it, uh, says that Moore's law is just one specific instance of a, a larger law that he calls the law of accelerating returns, which, you know, if you were to adopt that, then it, it becomes even more obvious that progress will not only continue, but will continue to accelerate. Mm. You know, if you believe that every, you know, the, as, as Terrence McKenna would say, or had said, uh, you know, the universe is a novelty conserving engine and it builds upon a previous novelty that was conserved so that the process becomes faster and faster. And I don't think that uh, Ray Kurzweil would enjoy being compared to Terence McKenna, but they were preaching a very similar message. Okay. <laughs> that novelty is conserved. And so that's like the process of uncovering new information is... Something which, and build, building and, complex structures, which in turn make it easier to build even more complex structures. And, and uncover, uncover more of that novelty. Is it? Yeah, I think create would be the, the better uh -huh. uh, verb rather yes. than uncover. Okay. So that I think there's a distinction to be drawn between scientific discovery and the creation of uh, structures of knowledge. Yes. Okay. Well – do you know how um, Moore's Law is tracking at the moment and um, what the researchers in the paper say about it? 
Well, this is nothing new, but uh, we know that Moore's Law cannot continue forever, that uh, the, the circuits that power our computers are basically created through a process of photolithography, where you design a circuit, you etch it, uh, you know, using this photolithographic process onto a semiconductor, in our case, silicon. But eventually, those pathways can't get any smaller because these are pathways for electrons to run down, thus, you know, electronic. Uh, but eventually, if those pathways get too small, the electrons won't stay in the pathways. They will jump out. And it, at a certain scale, and I think right now, you know, the, the newest chips are at the, the 14 nanometer scale, which is impossibly small to, you know, visualize for us human beings. But uh, you can't get too much smaller because the electrons just won't run down the paths that you have laid out for them. So Moore's law, as it applies to integrated circuits, you know, printed on semiconductors, that has had an end date for a while now. We know it's coming. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's... Um, there's an accompanying law to Moore's law, which is Rock's law, which says that the price of a chip fabrication plant doubles every four years. So just the the scientific and the technical understanding of how to make smaller, more powerful chips is not the only limiting factor. There's also a financial limitation. It's increasingly expensive to fund the research, to create the new chips, and to build the factories in which they will be built. Mm-hmm. And they also mention in the report, and you might have these stats to hand, I can't remember, but there's um, some to maintain a steady rate of Moore's law, so a constant increase in the amount of transistors per unit area, uh, the amount of researchers um, needed to do that has gone up astronomically. It has increased geometrically along with Moore's Law, yes. For every every cycle of Moore's Law, basically, you double the number of people working on it. Yeah. And, yet, of course, what we're – I mean, at some point, in order to maintain Moore's Law by that logic, um, everybody in the world would have to be a, <laughs> a, an IT researcher or a, 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 yeah, a silicon right. researcher or whatever. And so by that logic, we can't maintain that um, Moore's Law forever. So and processes which can't continue won't. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's so much we can talk about, but I'm just not sure. Well, that... We, we got we to talk about aliens at some point. I know. Um, <laughs> what, one thing that uh, – have you ever had Joseph Tainter on the show? I have exchanged emails with Joseph Tainter, but I've never actually gotten him on the phone. I'd love to talk to him on, on our show sometime. The Peter Principle, which you mentioned earlier, which is where the people get um, – promoted to the level of their incompetence has some parallels to the thesis that he puts forward in his book, The Collapse of Complex Societies, which is probably 20 years old or something now. And he talks about complexity and, you know, bureaucratic processes. I think he defines complexity as um, how many different types of job there are, occupations. So a hunter-gatherer, can do everything, build a house, make clothes, catch food. There's not a lot of complexity in the society, even if as individuals they might be incredibly intelligent and they actually had bigger brains than us domesticated, specialized, industrial humans. But um, he says the more complexity you have, the more sort of specialization, eventually it creates inefficiencies. And you can sort of, yeah, bureaucracy is probably one example, but just like people of increasing specialization actually in a way doing less important things. And you can see that in academia and in science. Um, 
Have, do you think that could be a factor in terms of uh, limiting growth? Certainly. Um, I think worse than limiting growth, the, the, the phenomena that Tainer describes, whereby we respond to pressures with increased complexity, which require you know, more energy and more bureaucratic organization, that's it's a very... Uh, it's it's a cogent description of I think a, a pathological aspect of our just you know the way we approach the world as a complex civilization. We think more complexity is always better, but we don't appreciate that it comes at higher and higher costs, which eventually will not be sustainable. Yeah, yeah. And so he, even without looking at resource depletion and pollution, he traced several societies and just saying like that this kind of organizational complexity has diminishing returns and ultimately adding more complexity actually has decreasing returns but it's hard to fight the process of it once it's in process i think to be honest i haven't read the book but um listened to interviews with him and that's that's the message i've drawn out of it well as you say it's it's an old book and he has been doing interviews based on it for 20 years or more so he's uh, very good at condensing and conveying the content yeah and one of the reasons why we think that um, a little bit of evidence, perhaps, that civilizations are doomed at least to decreasing complexity and uh, reverting to simpler forms at some point in their trajectories rather than onward and upward and ever expansion is that presumably there have been other civilizations in the universe before that we're not the only one. Uh, but we do not see any sign of them, and you're no doubt familiar with this conundrum known as the Fermi paradox. Yep. Where yeah. is everybody? Where is everyone? Uh, some people, you know, at the extreme end of the the expansionist progress thing, imagine um, that we would create self-replicating um, machines. Do you know what they're called? They've got a name for them. Um, Von Neumann probes. That's it. Yeah, von Neumann probes, and uh, what what's the name of those things that people are actually looking out for through radio telescopes and things? But the idea would be that um, to capture all the energy of the sun, you'd basically build a dark, a, you know, solar panels, a Dyson sphere, a Dyson sphere all the way around it. So that's they're kind of like the extreme ends of this vision, and that. Um, and therefore, if, you, if any significantly advanced civilization would tend towards these strategies, some people would see that as almost inevitable. And so that we would, we would see them. We would see evidence of them because they would be out capturing resources for their expansion in this colonial <laughs> capitalist kind of way, maybe, or just spreading <laughs> happy, good vibes. Who knows what they're like? But almost anybody with any value system wants resources to spread those values so these type of strategies would likely be part of what they would do so where are they and um do you have any theories about what the what the reasons for why we don't see these civilizations are well this is a topic of, of long-standing interest for me so i have absorbed many other people's thoughts on the topic I, I can't claim that any of them are my own but um you know that I think the larger or the more obvious flavors of explanation are, you know, we are pretty early. The The universe is uh, 13.8 billion years old and it's got a long way to go and it takes a while for life and particularly intelligent life and uh, particularly intelligent life with the means to create complex technologies. It takes a while to get started. 
you know, the, the Earth is uh, gosh, what, about four and a half billion years old, and we've only got another billion years before our sun expands into a red giant and makes life here impossible. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's quite likely that uh, the Earth could have run its, its full sequence of, you know, being in a habitable zone around a, a fairly long-burning and stable star, and uh, technological civilization would have never arisen. You know, the dinosaurs were very successful. They stuck around for a very long time on Earth, and if there hadn't been that cosmic collision, which brought their, you know, their tenure to an end, uh, we never would have had the opportunity to arise and create a complex civilization. Hmm. Um, so that's another. It. That's it. Go ahead. That's almost like the optimistic vision, isn't it? Because it's saying yeah. there are a lot of reasons why intelligent, um, you know, conscious. Well, I'm not de- mean to denigrate the dinosaurs, but complex civilization. Um, there's a lot of reasons why it might not have come about. The bottleneck might be before where we are now. Yes, the great filter. It could be before where we are or it could be after. Um, yeah. If it's before, well, that it makes sense that there's not that many critters out there. And if it's after, well, that's really bad news because it means our future is not as bright as we'd think. You know, you say you didn't want to denigrate dinosaurs, but think of whales and dolphins. They are, uh, their brains are as big as ours and their thought processes are arguably as complex. They are very social creatures. They have uh, complex social bonds and, you know, organizations of uh, social, you know, they, they get along well. Uh, they're, they're admirable in many ways. They have, they can never utilize fire or any sort of combustion or, you know, they'll never have any complex technology. And, you know, it's, it's just not guaranteed that, uh, on a a planet where life evolves and where intelligent life evolves, that a complex technological civilization will result. Hmm. And, you know, as I say, if it weren't for a particular, uh, catastrophe, we never would have gotten our shot and we could, you know, the earth could easily have gone another billion years and reached the end of its run. And it just, we never would have arisen. You know, there's a book and I haven't read it, but I I did listen (laughs) to interviews with the authors. Uh, It's a few years old now. It's called Rare Earth. Mm -hmm. And it's talking about all the things that make our planet pretty special and, you know, pretty rare. And things like Jupiter. Jupiter is this, enormously, you know, 90% of the mass in our solar system that isn't in the sun is in Jupiter. And it's way out in this, this far orbit from the sun. And it basically, it deflects a lot of incoming objects, which would, you know, create these uh, extinction level events more often were it not for Jupiter. Our moon, it really stabilizes the earth. It gives us um, a a very uh, stable, uh, spin and it, it, it stabilizes the, the tides. It provides the tides. I mean, it makes the tides and it, it just makes the earth a more stable place to be. Also, um, keeps us, you know, gives us some measure of protection from, from incoming objects. Our, the dynamic core of the earth, you know, the, the nickel iron core and the, the, the massive activity down there creates this enormous magnetic field, which protects us from radiation and charged particles coming in from the sun and from elsewhere. We have the, uh, you know, the, very complex arrangement of layers in the upper atmosphere, which also protects us from, Mm -hmm. from radiation. Ozone and yep. Yeah. Any, if any of these were not present and you know, our moon given its size relative to the size of our planet is, is unique in our solar system. If, if any of those elements weren't there, 
then the Earth would not be nearly as attractive or likely a place for the, you know, the birth of complex life and certainly, you know, complex technology, technology using civilization. So it's just not that outrageous to think that the particular arrangement of elements that we have here is pretty darn rare. And yes, there are billions of galaxies with billions of stars in every galaxy. So surely we're not alone in the universe. But because of the limitation imposed by the speed of light, long distance communication is is really impractical. You know, if you want to send a message to your nearest neighbor, it could be that it's a 10,000 year round trip for, you know, you saying hello, they're hearing it and saying hello back. And, you know, by the time that message comes back, the people who sent it are long dead. It just could be that civilizations, even if they don't burn out quickly, even if they tend to have fairly long lives, just don't live long enough or expand far enough to meet their neighbors. Even if they even if they do have long lives, they don't get out very far. Yes, well, that's the optimistic view. And the negative one is that things like, um, you know, it's also just a unfortunate... Um, or fortunate, depending on where you are, but it's this the fact that nuclear weapons are possible. Like there's only two elements or three um, that we can make them out of, but it could easily have been zero. And um, it could be that every sufficiently advanced civilization figures them out and wipes themselves out. It could be that we <laughs> create AIs and, you know, the singularity version that you're invested in in a previous life also has a dark <laughs> side. Um, it's very, we did a show about you know how difficult it is to would be to control an intelligence more intelligent than yourself, and um, yeah, so that's the dark side. That the great filter is something that happens after this stage. Your we should um, wrap it up, but I want to give you a chance to talk about your web comic because <laughs> that's also about aliens um, and uh, in a in a world where <laughs> the great filter hasn't wiped. Um, a whole lot of different alien races out and they are collaborating it. Um, tell us about that. Well, I'm happy to. Uh, let me ask you a question, though, before we get into that. Yeah. Suppose th there's um, a short story from the 80s which got expanded into a novel called Blood Music. Uh -huh. And it's basically about uh, a, a nano, a biotech technological singularity whereby the cells in a person's uh, body become individually smart so that the whole person's body is like a civilization of, of billions of people. And it, it radically transforms the world. And basically it creates a whole universe of experience and possibilities that it's just right contained right here on Earth. And the short story, the original short story, ends with a character realizing why they never got any message from alien civilizations, why alien civilizations never explored the stars, he says it's because they found stars within the grains of sand, which is to say mm. they, could, they could find much more uh, rich experience and discover you know, new forms of intelligence and new possibilities by going small and moving inward than they can by expanding outward. And mm. given the vast distances of the universe and the limitations imposed by the speed of light, you know, would that be bad news to discover that the aliens are out there? But they've just learned that it... They're just staring much, into their navel. <laughs> yeah. Well, you say they're staring into their navel, which puts a negative spin on it. But you could describe it as they have discovered that their energies are, are better used, that they get better returns from 
looking inward and finding the vastness of uh, the universe at the small scale than they get from trying to expand outward. So they're looking into their navel, but there's a universe of beauty in there. Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you. I hadn't heard of that. And that um, is a ray of hope uh, and a solution to the Fermi paradox, which I do like the sound of. Yes. Tell us about your new comic. Okay. The comic does not uh, does not incorporate that idea. Uh, the comic is called Geb. It's yep. G-E-B-B. And the website is geb.io. And uh, Geb is the Egyptian uh, deity who personifies the earth. So that's one level of meaning for the comic. It's also uh, a secret organization, which in the context of the comic hasn't actually been introduced yet. But it is about aliens on Earth, and it assumes that the uh, typical alien abduction scenario is true, that there are aliens from various planets who are here on Earth for reasons which have not yet been explained. But in carrying out the work that they do, they, uh, they create these little automatons called the greys, you know, the short gray guys with the big black eyes, and that the greys go out and they kidnap people and they bring them back to a secret base, which in this instance is underneath Antarctica. And they give them alien or anal probes and uh, collect the data and then, you know, take the people back with not erased memories, but sort of scrambled memories. You know, they smeared memories, not uh, not wiped clean, but, you know, made inaccessible and incomprehensible. And that the consortium of alien races, which are they're they're doing this, um, the, the main characters in the story are very low-level functionaries. Like uh-huh. the Antarctica base is where the losers <laughs> get sent. And they don't see any point in the work that they do. And, you know, they don't see any reason to take it seriously. And so they fixate on uh, human, specifically English, English language, pop culture and entertainment. They focus on food, which they <laughs> steal from the humans. Uh, the, you know, they're growing weed down there. And <laughs> basically they're just... You know, they're, they're slackers, alien slackers under the ice in Antarctica. And the story starts when they get a new boss and the new boss is by the numbers and promotion driven. And he's looking to whip them into shape and get them, you know, back on productive track. OK, well, <laughs> there's the... actually a lot of parallel. You know, it sounds like it's about office politics, but in a uh, corporation which is suffering from um, maybe, you know, being at the latest stage of the Peter Principle or something anyway. But um I very much uh, look forward to the future editions of that. I've been reading the first few and they're very entertaining. And um, it seems like you've been on hiatus from the Sea Realm podcast at the moment, but will you be broadcasting soon? And where can people find that? Well, people can find lots of, you know, former back episodes of the Sea Realm podcast at my website, SeaRealm.com. That's the letter C and then a dash and then R-E-A-L-M, Sea Realm. Um, I do two podcasts. I do the Sea Realm podcast and the Sea Realm Vault podcast. The Sea Realm Vault podcast is for paying subscribers. And, uh, you know, just because of the realities of living in a, a capitalist society where I have uh, rent due, the the paid podcast comes first. And now that a lot of my excess, <laughs> former formerly excess time is taken up uh, by drawing this comic, uh, I don't have a lot of time to do the free podcast anymore. I, I've been trying to get out one a month, but I didn't get one out in July. So uh, I, maybe I didn't get one out in June either. <laughs> also, my my technological civiliz- civilization situation hmm. has degenerated, and I can't seem to record Skype calls reliably right now. 
So I have access to a TV station uh, right across the parking lot from where I live, and I'm going to start recording uh, video calls over there, and the future podcasts will also be you know, video-oriented and on YouTube, but that we just haven't gotten up to speed on that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I have been involved in the creation of um, uh, a series of, of video it's fiction, and I'd call it a movie, but the episodes are quite short, but it's not – they don't come out often enough to really be a series. We've just finished uh, principal photography on the second episode, you know, which is nearly a year after the first episode came out. But it's, uh, it's a supernatural thriller in which I play a, um, a corrupt police officer who has been possessed by a demon. Okay. I know nothing <laughs> yeah. of this. So what, where do we find that one? Uh, you can find the first episode on YouTube. It's called Strange Events at the Vilas Bridge. Vilas okay. is V-I-L-A-S. Awesome. Well, it's yep. been an absolute pleasure again to talk to you, KMO, and um, thanks for doing what you do and for weighing in on um, those issues of growth, whether it's a myth, whether it's going to go on forever. Um, and we'll hopefully have you back on Greening the Apocalypse again sometime soon. Thank you. I love being the guest on podcasts because I don't have to do any editing. (laughs) We went on for much longer than I intended, so I am already thinking about that. But uh, (laughs) we'll put out an extended version, I think, for the podcast and a shorter version for the live tour. All right. Hey, Adam, it's always fun. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.